They say disaster can't derail destiny. That every move God makes is carefully designed for my good. That he always has a plan. Our momentary lifespans just passage. And I guess it must be true. Because they say it. They say he'll never give me more than I can bear. My feelings of abandonment just impaired understanding of his great love for me. That God has a purpose for my pain. And I guess it must be true because they say it. They say every door closed is a window opened. To just let go and let God that maybe the issue is a prayer unspoken. That maybe my lifestyle is flawed. They say, maybe God is teaching me something. That he gives and he takes away. And they remind me that faith like mustard seeds has changed entire landscapes. They say, it's all part of a bigger plan. Everything happens for a reason. It was set in motion before time began that for everything, there's a season. They say, count it all joy and blessed are those and his strength is made perfect in weakness. But what I really need to know Is what they say true, Jesus? Do you teach through tragedy? Is human misery heavenly currency? And if so, how do you choose the ones you barter away? Did my mistakes make me disposable? Was my faith too small to move mountains? So instead, you crush me beneath them. Are my heartaches the income earned from my failures? I remember when I was sure of your love. I remember when this simple equation of my faith yielded the sum of your protection. When I was safe in the knowledge that I was your child and you were in control. But their heartfelt condolences burn like coals and the heat scalds away the pretense of my faith until the only thing left Burning is my doubt. I have.
have so many questions that confession something I hide inside my heart. My faith is breaking. Each shard a jagged piece in a line that I gather together. Here. Why won't you take them? I don't want these doubts. They fill me up the way hope. Hope. They fill me up the way hope used to. And even your house contains no answers, just more questions. What if you're good? What if you're merciful? What if I've come to you in prayer? What if two or more are gathered? What if it's more than I can bear? What if I believe you? What if I trust? What if I turn away from sin? What if I confess my transgressions? What if I search my heart within? What if I lay it at your cross? What if you never pick it up? What if the plans you've made for those who love mean I don't love enough? What if I try to love you better? Like they say I need to do. What if all of this is all my fault? What if what they say is true? I've asked Micah before she leaves to share just a little bit of the background of that poem uh, comes from a very personal experience in her own life and she agreed to uh, share that with you. Our oldest daughter had a very difficult beginning. During her birth, part of her spinal cord was injured and she was a stillborn child. And right away, the hospital knew her injury was beyond anything they knew how to help. And she was life-flighted to the Hershey NICU, where they fought for a long time to save her life. And when we were finally able to bring her home, nothing was resolved. She was a paraplegic 
she could not move her shoulders or her arms or her right hand. And because she had gone without oxygen during her birth, there were areas of her brain that were damaged and the doctors had no idea if they would ever resolve. We were told anything from a complete recovery to a child who would never walk or speak were possible and that we had to go home and simply wait to find out. Her entire future was uncertain and terrifying. And I remember during that time lying face down on the floor in her nursery and just praying the word, please, over and over because I had no other words to express the anguish inside of me and my fear for her future and our lives. They looked like that for months and months and months. We lived in constant fear that she would stop breathing again and that her heart would stop beating again and that she would never recover any use of her arms or her hand and that the injury to her brain would never recover to the point where she could lead any kind of normal life. And I started to blame myself for everything that had happened. But what really broke me during that time and led me to a place of complete hopelessness was that I felt God had abandoned us in that never-ending dark place. And the words of that poem flow directly out of that time in my life when I let hopelessness overcome me and I lost sight of what I know to be true. We're closing out the series called uh, Life in a Word, and we deal with that very word, hopelessness. And hope is something that as human beings, we were meant to have always. We were, we were meant to be hope-filled. Had things gone the way that God originally intended, had we never broken trust with God, we would have lived every single day of our life with hope as a certainty. We would have been hope-filled. We would have known that everywhere we go in the world, we would be loved and accepted and safe and secure, that every day was a good day and the one after it was going to be better. We would know there's no such thing as pain, sickness, sorrow, or death. They wouldn't have existed. And hope would have filled our hearts every day, all the time little caveat when we find the word hope in scripture in God's revelation his truth about himself and about life it's not used in the way that we commonly use today we kind of use it like wishful thinking you know I I hope I get the raise or something like that that's not the way it's used in scripture it's used of certainties things that are absolutes they are things we can count on we are told to anticipate them we are told to wait on them and although we live in a world now where the kind of hope that God originally intended us to be immersed in every day all the time, that's not the world we live in. The scripture does say we can still have hope. Hope that nothing can shake 
And in today's message, I want to kind of take you on a journey from present hopelessness to the place of permanently hope-filled, because that's possible for each and every one of us. Let me share, start off sharing a few quotes about hope. Humans seek after hope like moths seek after light. It's intrinsic to who we are. Neuroscientist Tali Sherratt argues hope is so essential to our survival that it is hardwired into our brains, arguing it can be the difference between living a healthier life versus one trapped by despair. It goes on. Dr. Shane Lopez, psychologist who was regarded as the world's leading researcher on hope, claimed that hope isn't just an emotion, but an essential life tool. But if it's an essential life tool, the evidence is right now, there's growing evidence that we, as a generation of people, are losing the ability to use this tool, or maybe we can't find the tool, this tool of hope. It goes on. New research reveals that depression is the most common serious medical or mental health disorder in the United States. And I'm not saying that all depression is linked to hopelessness. I know that some of it is physiological, biological. I understand that. According to the World Health Organization, depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide. Psychiatrist and professor Aaron Curiarty adds this sobering conclusion. We are witnessing a rising plague of melancholy. And that's here in the States where we're living at a level that human beings never thought even possible. Over a 10-year span, it turns out that one factor most strongly predictive of suicide is a person's sense of hopelessness. The man without hope is the likeliest candidate for suicide. We cannot live without hope. But like I said, indicators are that hope seems to be something that we are having a harder and harder time holding on to. Now, I just want to say, starting out this morning, I have no doubt in my mind that some of us here this morning are in that place that we humans can all slip into where It just looks, or at least it feels, hopeless. There might be some sector of our life that just feels so hopeless that the pain is pervasive. We can never quite shake it. It just follows us everywhere we go, everything we do. In fact, let me go. There may be uh, other parts of our life that things are going very well, but we feel so hopeless in one area that it sort of drains us of, of all of our vitality for living. So hopelessness is not something that's strange or unusual to us. Let me go further. I wish I could say that every Christ follower, everyone that's put their trust in Christ and become his follower, never has to struggle with this. But as Micah so vulnerably shared, that just isn't true. We can all still slip into this. But a believer, a follower of Christ, has resources to rebound and to gain hope And to stay permanently hope-filled. To stay out of that place of hopelessness. So I hope to share truth today that will help us on whatever side of the equation we're on. Now I'm going to turn you to a portion of scripture from the Old Testament today. And uh, we're going to do a lot of reading from there. It's a most interesting portion of scripture. So if you don't mind, turn to page 410 in those Bibles that are near you on the chair. Or if you brought your own Bible, turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. While you're turning there, I'll give you just a little bit of background. When you come to 2 Kings, 
the nation of Israel has had a split. It had its 12 tribes, or let's call them 12 states. And Saul, the first king, ruled over them for 42 years. And then David ruled for 40 years. And then Solomon, after him, ruled the whole United Kingdom for 40 years. So about 122 years there was a united rule. But then because of Solomon's exorbitant lifestyle and taxation, there was a revolution. And the ten northern tribes, typically called Israel or Samaria, they went off separately. They started their own kingdom. It was not a legitimate line of kings. All kings, God had said, were to come from Davidic lineage. Uh, the little tribe of Judah, where the temple was, Jerusalem, and Benjamin, they went and formed their own kingdom. And so you have this split kingdom, and the northern kingdom, or Samaria or Israel, is where the text takes place today. We're, we're in about 878, uh, or I'm sorry, 858 B.C., when you come to this portion of Scripture. We're looking at the ninth king since the two, or, or since the north and south split, and it's a guy named Jehoram. Now, here's the thing about the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom uh, had 19 kings from uh, its existence, and not one of them, not one of them was the godly uh, leader that God intended. Every single one of them was ungodly, dabbled in all sorts of idolatry and so forth. Jehoram was just like that. Uh, the southern kingdom, it had about eight kings that were godly kings and leaders and led the people of Israel in the way that God wanted them to. Okay, that's the background. So here we are, we're picking up with Jehoram. He's the ninth king uh, in the North Kingdom's history of 19 kings. And we're going to start in chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 24. We're going to read verse 24 through 31, then I'm going to take you to chapter 7. We'll take a little break, I'll do some teaching, then I'm going to bring you back into the book again. So here we go, chapter 6, verse 24. It says, later Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, assembled his entire army and attacked and besieged Samaria. Samaria was the capital of Israel or the northern kingdom. Samaria's food supply ran out. They laid siege to it so long that a donkey's head was selling for 80 shekels of silver. Uh, by the way, that's $378 in today's money. And a quarter of a cob of dove's droppings for five shekels of silver, a quarter of a cob was about eight ounces. So this was a real bargain. You get about eight ounces of dove's droppings for twenty dollars. Is about what it would come out to today. You won't find that at Wegmans. Uh, they rarely have the donkey heads as well. <laughs> so this is placed there because. It's trying to express the dire conditions. When, when an army would place a siege on a city, it could go on for months and months. And they just waited until the people inside were starving to death to the point that they would either give up or come out and fight. Verse 26, it says, While the king of Israel was passing by on the city wall, a woman shouted to him, Help us, my master, O king. He replied, no, let the Lord help you. How can I help you? The threshing floor and the wine press are empty. Then the king asked her, what's your problem? She answered, the woman said to me, hand over your son. We'll eat him today and then eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. Then I said to her the next day, hand over your son and we'll eat him. But she hid her son. 
When the king heard what the woman said, he tore his clothes as he was passing by on the wall. The people could see he was wearing sackcloth, symbolic of mourning, under his clothes. Then he said, may God judge me severely if Elisha, Elisha was the prophet of that time, son of Shaphat, still has his head by the end of the day. Let me pause there for a minute. So here's this wicked king, Jehoram, who has no intention of following God's will, but he's blaming the catastrophe on God and God's prophet. Now, mind you, God entered into a covenant with the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. He said, listen, I'm going to start revealing myself to you, and I want you to start keeping the record of my revelation to you in a book. I want you to pass it on. I want you to preserve it, and I want you to live it out for the watching world so the watching world can see how I really am, who I really am, how good my ways really are, how trustworthy I am. And so if you do this, he told the Israelites, I'll protect you. I'll protect you from all the other nations and I'll bless your crops and I'll bless your herds and your life will be very, very good. But if you forsake me and if you start to misrepresent me, I can't bless you anymore. I'll pull my protection back and you'll see what it's like to fend for yourself in the rough world of that day. So they were being besieged because they had deserted God. They were not mirroring his image at all to the rest of the world. And so he couldn't favor and bless them. And yet his mercy is still shown in that he sends Elisha the prophet to them. He's still pleading with them to return. He's still pleading with them just as he pleads with us. Why destroy yourselves? Trust me. Come home to me. Learn my ways, the way that I designed you to live, and you'll find peace. It's always God's message. So that's kind of the context, and things have become very, very dire to the point that women are eating their own children. The starvation was so bad. So what happens next is this. The king sends messengers, and he's coming too to Elisha. Now, mind you, he's coming to Elisha because he wants to kill him. He's blaming this catastrophe on Elisha, God's prophet. It wasn't his fault at all. It was the king's fault for misleading the people of Israel. Now, Elisha is alerted by God that he's coming, and so he's sitting with a group of people, and he says, you know, my assassin is on his way. He's ready to take my head off. And so they bar the door for a while, and then finally they let in the king's messenger. And let's pick back up and read in chapter 7. Elisha replied, hear the word of the Lord. So now he's talking to the king's messenger, who initially was sent to kill him. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a seah of finely milled flour, that's about three gallons, will sell for a shekel, that's about $4. And two seahs of barley, that's almost six gallons, will sell for also $4. So, so he's saying that we're going to go from starvation to abundance of food by tomorrow. And they're not buying it. Look at the reaction of the man that was sent to talk to him. Verse 2 of chapter 7. An officer who was the king's right-hand man responded to the prophet, Look, even if the Lord made it rain by opening holes in the sky, could this happen so soon? Elisha said, Look, you will see it happen with your own eyes, but you will not eat any of the food. Pause. Seal all that truth in your mind. Now we're going to meet four other characters. So 
Let me add this one little thing. So here now we have the people of Israel being told by God through Elisha, this thing is going to end. Trust me, it's going to end as bad, as horrible as it's been. I'm going to graciously intervene and you will have an abundance of food. The living God has promised it. So they had, they had the word of God. They had the promise of God. They had a basis, a foundation for their hope. And we're going to meet four guys in a minute who had no basis. They had no word from God. They had no promise from God. They had nothing. So it's a fascinating comparison. Those that are from the out, they have nothing to do with God. And those that are on the inside that have something to do. But both are equally hopeless. So let's meet these four very interesting guys. It says, now four men with a skin disease. In most translations, it says lepers. They were probably leprous. Now four men with a skin disease or lepers were sitting at the entrance of the city gate. They said to one another, why are we just sitting here waiting to die? If we go into the city, we'll die of starvation. And if we stay here, we'll die. So come on, let's defect to the Syrian camp. If they spare us, we'll live. If they kill us, well, we're going to die anyway. I added the, huh. But that's their attitude. It's, it's really kind of fascinating and amusing. I mean, these guys, you ought to understand. The reason they're outside the city, outside the camp, is because those with skin diseases that were considered leprous, in most cases they might have been, they were not allowed to get near the rest of the people. They had to live in these, you know, uh, groups amongst themselves. In fact, if they even saw somebody on the road, they had to shout, don't come near, don't come near, infectious, infectious, leper, leper. So these guys are already really living a very lonely, agonizing life with very little hope. But now on top of it, they're starving. And so they say, what do we got to lose? We're going to die if we stay here. We're going to die if we go in the city. They're all starving to death. Let's defect. Let's see what the Syrians do to us. And if they kill us, what do we have to lose? Their hopelessness, their hopelessness creates something that later on we'll find is actually a benefit. So let's go on just a bit more. Uh, and no, actually, actually, let's, let's pause there and I'll pick back up the story with them in, in just a little bit as we go into the message. So the journey I want to take you on is a journey from being presently hopeless to ultimately becoming permanently hopeful. Let me share a verse with you from the book of Job that just kind of describes it in a palpable way the feeling of hopelessness. Job says, my days pass, my plans are shattered, even the desires of my heart. Where then is my hope? And my hope, who sees it? My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, and they come to an end without what? And there just might be somebody right here this morning. Your game face is on. You're not letting anybody know. You're trying desperately to hold it together. You're trying to function, and that's good. But inside... You are in such pain, you don't quite know how to describe it. The feeling of hopelessness, it it has a way of penetrating us on such a deep level. It doesn't matter how strong we are. It doesn't matter how talented we are. It doesn't matter how prosperous we are. It doesn't matter how smart we are. 
It doesn't matter how popular or attractive we are. If you feel hopeless, and let me go further, it doesn't even matter if your feeling of hopelessness is based on anything that's accurate. If you feel it, it breaks us down. And it can bring us, we read those, those earlier quotes, it can bring us to the place where it's, it seems less painful to live or it seems less painful to die than it is to live. And sometimes people take their own lives. Let me go to another, another quote about this. A study at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago found that a belief in a, this is important, a belief in a concerned God, a God that cares, belief in a caring, a concerned God can improve response to medical treatment in patients diagnosed with clinical depression. The operative word here is caring. It goes on. Researchers compared the levels of melancholy or hopelessness in 136 adults diagnosed with major depression, and they were 75% more likely to get better with the belief that a supreme being cared. Why is that? Why is that? I mean, could it be that we were made, like the Scripture says, by Christ and for Christ, and that apart from Him, our life just never coheres? Could it be that apart from a a real experiential day-to-day, second-to-second relationship with our Creator Christ, that we really can't function as normal, healthy, full human beings? Is, Is hopelessness, let me go this far, is hopelessness an inevitability in a world where so many people are still disconnected from their creator when we were made by him and for him and we're only fully human and fully alive when we're living in this experientially intimate day-to-day relationship with Christ our creator because it's through him that we get our sense of identity it's through him we get our sense of security it's through him that we get our sense of significance that nothing can take away it's through him that we know who we are why we're here what is the meaning of life why is the world in the state that it is in and where is it going we we get a picture of the truth the truth about God the truth about ourselves, the truth about life and we cannot get that apart from our creator we can get lots of information but there's something inside can a man live without God the answer is no not really we're just like zombies just waiting for our last brainwave to occur without God so I want to share three powerful truths about hopelessness hopelessness can produce boldness that leads to wholeness think of those lepers they're like hey we're, if we stay here we're going to die if we go in the city we're going to die so let's let's do something crazy Let, let's go to the enemy let's go to the Syrians If they kill us, we'll but die. But who knows? And so here's the thing. Some of you really need to hear this because you're going to stay stuck in hopelessness. Listen to me carefully. You're going to stay stuck in hopelessness. Some of you have prayed and prayed and prayed for God to take it away, to change things. And he's giving you an answer. Some of you, he's giving you the answer. And the answer is, is you must do something that seems rather scary. You must do something that seems incredibly hard to do. You must be willing to do something that's so bold, maybe so reckless, you wouldn't do it at any other time. But it's the pathway 
It's the pathway to you getting out of hopelessness. Here it is. Hopelessness can produce boldness that leads to wholeness. When we're so hopeless that we have nothing to lose, we're sometimes energized to take action that we would not have taken in any other circumstance. Listen, some of us, we've been putting off things for a long time. We've known. We've known for a long time there's things we need to deal with. There's things we need to do. But those things look so hard. They look so difficult. They may take so long, and we know it. And the process we are so afraid of that we'd rather live in mediocrity and agony and and hopelessness rather than face the dramatic change that we know we've got to be one of face. But if you get hopeless enough, if, if it hurts bad enough, sometimes you say, you know what? I'm just going to do it. I know I need to do it. I know it's the only possible. I'm going to take the most drastic action and I'm going to throw myself into it entirely because it's my last hope. So hopelessness, ironically can fuel bold action that can ultimately lead us to wholeness. We'll get get into this a little more. You'll see just how this works out. Secondly, experiencing the activity of God can transform the hopeless into messengers of hope. I'm going to do something. I'm going to break off on this. We can just leave this up uh, or come back to this. And I want to take you back, or actually leave it up here and I'm going to take you guys back to the text. Go, go back to your text and I want to show you what happens. Back to chapter 7. Let's pick up in verse 5. We're still dealing with our leper buddies. So they started toward the Syrian camp at dusk. When they reached the edge of the Syrian camp, there was no one there. Mind you, For months, there had been a massive, probably thousands and thousands of soldiers in this siege uh, army that had been there. They go to the camp, and there's not a soul. Verse 6, the Lord had caused the Syrian camp to hear the sounds of chariots and horses and a large army. They said to one another, look, the king of Israel has paid the kings of the Hittites and Egypt to attack us. So they got up and they fled at dusk leaving behind their tents, horses, and donkeys. They left the camp as it was, and they ran for their lives. When the men with the skin disease reached the edge of the camp, they entered a tent, and they had a meal. They also took some silver, gold, and clothes and went and hid it all. Then they went back, and they entered another tent. They looted it, and they went and they hid what they had taken. Then they said to one another, It's not right what we're doing. This is a day to celebrate. But we haven't, what does it say? Told anyone. So come on. Let's go inform the royal palace. And so they do. Here's my point. Now let me go back and this will make so much more sense to you. First of all, the boldness of the lepers led to their wholeness. Second point, experiencing the activity of God can transform the hopeless into messengers of hope. These lepers evidently didn't know anything much about God. They weren't even thinking about God. They certainly didn't know that Elisha the prophet had received a word and a promise from God that 
there was going to be an abundance of food within hours. We didn't know how this was going to come to pass, but God causes this noise that sounded like foreign armies, and the Syrians just panic, and they run. These lepers, you've you got to hear this, because some, some of you, this is going to be really important for you. When we knowingly or unknowingly get close to the activity of God, when, when we get near a place where God is at work, where God is doing some things, when we, we may not even know it. We, we just stumble onto it, but, but we're, we're near. We're in the place where God is doing some things. It can change us. It can start to transform us. We start to think differently. We, we start to get a new perspective on ourselves and on life. We, we start to feel differently. These lepers who had no hope, it was as they experienced the activity of God. They didn't even know that God was the cause of what had happened that drove off these Syrians. But just being near the place where God's doing stuff, just being around people that God is doing something in, can stir some things in a person and can transform the hopeless into messengers of hope. They go from being completely hopeless to saying, come on, guys, this isn't good. We, we got to tell them up, up, at the, up at the palace. They're up there starving. They're eating donkey's heads and dove's dung. I mean, come on. We got we to go up there and tell them. This is not, these guys go from being utterly hopeless to being messengers of hope. They start giving hope to the entire city that was being besieged. This is a powerful thing, but it all happens when people get near the activity of God. I'm just going to say what, what, what you might know what I'm saying. Local churches where people are faithful to Christ and faithful to the Word of God, the Spirit of God is always working. He's always active in places like that. And when someone gets near a place like that, it is not an unusual thing to see them go from being hopeless to becoming transformed themselves, having hope, and then becoming yet messengers of hope to other people who might be hopeless. That's a powerful transformation. Third point. Hope must be anchored to that which is what? Eternally certain. Sometimes the problem with our becoming hopeless is that our expectations are not realistic. Our expectations are not aligned with what God has said He will do, He promises to do for us in this life. We have to separate these things. God promises to do certain things for us in this life. He promises to do certain things for us in eternity. I, if I want to have hope that is permanent, I have to make sure it's anchored to that which God has anchored himself to and said, I can count on. It says in Scripture, it says that he's promised to provide our needs in this life. But our idea of needs in modern society are pretty different than what the Bible's idea of needs, God's idea of needs might have been. They estimate there's been about 108 billion people that have ever lived and died on planet Earth. About 108 billion now, and we got about 7 billion on the planet now. We're at this big population growth, you know, since the 1850s. 1850, we crossed the, uh, the billion marker, and now we're kind of growing exponentially. It's kind of weird and crazy. But anyway, 108 billion people that ever lived and died, we are in about the 97%. In other words, 
it's only been about 3% of human beings that have experienced what you and I consider normal and necessary. Don't you consider electricity necessary? Don't you expect flushing toilet? Don't you expect to get into that big 3,500-pound chariot of yours and roar anywhere you want to go? And, 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 if, and if somebody is living in a tent, we say, man, that's rough, man. They, they, they must be in a war, war-torn land or something. They're living in a tent. Folks, Abraham, the model of our faith, the one that the New Testament keeps pointing to and saying, be like that guy, be like that guy, be like that guy. He lived his whole life in a tent. He never owned a car. Never had a cell phone, never had any health care, never even had some Tylenol, never had any deodorant. <laughs> you ever have those days, you leave your house and you go, oh shoot, I forgot to put my deodorant on. And you're freaked out, you're, you're a little bit tense all day long. You, when nobody's looking, you're going, I'm still okay, I'm still okay. I mean, we, we've just created this mass of stress. And te- George Washington didn't, didn't use any deodorant. He was a smelly fella. Peter, James, and John, the apostles, they were stinky fellows. I'm, I can guarantee it. Of the 108 billion that have lived and died, the vast majority were very stinky people. <laughs> but we get stressed out about it. And we expect, we expect, we expect. Scripture says God promises food and shelter until our mission on earth is done. Everything above that, man, it's like, whew, you are really being blessed. But then in eternity, he promises us our heart's desires and more than our imagination can even put together. And he promises that will be ours, and that will be ours forever. And that will be in a world where there's no more sin, sorrow, sickness, pain, and death. No more hatred, no more prejudice, no more stress, no more worry. No more feeling like I don't belong, like I'm unloved, I don't fit in. And on, on, and on I could go. That's what we are told to anchor our hopes on, realistic expectations the things that God actually has promised. Listen to what it says in Jeremiah 17. It says, but blessed are those who, what? This is the beginning. Our creator, Christ, he waits for us to return to him in trust, to put our trust in him and to become his followers. That is what it means to become a Christian. You cannot be born a Christian. You can't be uh, put through some ceremony to be a Christian. There is no ceremony that will make you or I a Christian. God has given us free will. He loves us. He wants us. He waits until we are willing to return to him in trust and become followers of Christ. Jesus died on the cross to prove the depths of his sacrificial love and goodness so that we could trust in him completely and follow him fully follow him freely and follow him forever that and nothing less than that is a christian 
So it all starts with trust. The only thing that our creator could ever want from us is trust. He doesn't want to force us into obedience. He doesn't want to scare us into obedience. He waits for us to trust him so that we desire his will, his ways, and so on. How blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their what? One thing some of us need to do, we, we, we need to change our hope from a what instead of hoping in a something into putting our hope in a someone. Our hope, the Lord is my hope. And I want him to be your hope too because I know that will cause you to be permanently hope-filled as long as you hold on to your grip of clarity about what he's promised and what he hasn't. Their hope and their confidence. Here's another passage in 1 Peter chapter 1 from the New Testament. It says, let us thank the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was through his loving kindness that we were born again to a new life. That's when you trust in Christ, become his follower. You start life over as a child of God and have a hope. You have a hope when you're born again as a new follower of Christ that never what? Never dies. Can't be taken away. This hope is ours because Jesus was raised from the dead. Because he rose from the dead, it shows that he is more powerful than any of the evil forces in the universe. And he promised he would raise us up again when he returns the second time. This is a hope that cannot be taken away. One more. In the book of 1 Peter, it says, We have reverence for Christ or, or have reverence for Christ in your hearts and honor him as Lord. Be ready at all times to answer anyone who asks you to explain the what? The hope you have in you. We're to be ready to explain it. One last one from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. It says, we have this, what kind of hope? Certain hope. It's certain. This certain hope like a strong, unbreakable anchor holding our souls to what? God himself. Your hope has got to be in God. Your hope can't be in a something. Your hope can't be in a someone if that's a human being. Let me say that again because some of you, you're hoping in a human being and you're putting too much pressure on a human being. No human being can take the pressure of you placing all your hope in him or in her. We're fragile. We're not perfect. But when you put your hope in God... He is not fragile. He is perfect. He will sustain you. And then the hope that we get from imperfect human beings, it can be just an added bit of joy and strength in our lives. But that's where we've got to anchor our hope. It's got to be in God himself. And when we anchor our hope in God himself and we become clear about what he has promised us in this life, food and clothing shelter until the the mission is done and sometimes we lose those we lose food we lose clothing we lose shelter the apostle paul said many times he didn't have food or clothing or shelter so god just says he'll keep us alive essentially until our mission on planet earth is finished but then in eternity that's when he starts promising the desires of our heart that nothing can take away i'm going to close with a story it's rather long. You're going to have to be really, really patient with me because I'm going to read this because it's, it's, it's an, a beautiful, powerful story of a lady named Penny. She shared this in a church she ended up in in California. So um, bear, bear with me and um, we'll, we'll close out after this. She starts out by saying, my name is Penny. I'm a single mother of five. A succession of events destroyed the life that I had known. 
my apartment building was sold and I was forced to move. The only place for me and the kids to go to was a motel. I made $324 a week and I had to pay $343 in rent. So even though I worked 40 hours a week, I began cleaning rooms in the middle of the night at the motel. The $3 I made for cleaning each room helped to feed the kids during the week. My two older children had been attending the church uh, or a church's junior high ministry, and they finally convinced me to come to church on a Sunday. I really enjoyed it, and God started speaking to me. But my life became overwhelming. It was so hard to see my children suffering because of me. I just couldn't take care of them like a mother should. One night, I parked in front of that church, and I cried, and I asked God, why was I given these children if I am unable to take care of them? They were hungry and unhappy living in a one-room motel. They were suffering because of my inability. I was trying to fix things, but it wasn't working, so I asked God if I should turn them over to the state. I cried for about two hours that night, but I got no answer. I went back to the motel and kept going. After a few more weeks, I was falling deeper and deeper into a hole I couldn't get out. One day after work, I was at the end of my rope. There was barely anything to feed the kids. They were arguing with each other. I had a stressful day at work, and I had to work all night cleaning rooms. There was no one to help. So I sat down at the tiny table in the room, and I closed my eyes, and I prayed, and I asked God for strength. I told him I didn't need money to miraculously fall from the sky, but I just needed endurance through this trial. I asked him to give my children peace and give me a sign that I was going to make it. After I prayed, I lifted up my head and I took a deep breath. Right at that moment, there was a knock at my motel door. There were two people from a care team at church. (laughs) They were holding a cup filled with candy. (laughs) She says, I cried. I still don't know who those people were. There were still some hard times after that, but God gave me strength to find a new life. I joined a small group, and I became part of that wonderful family. Now God has moved me to a great place to live two blocks from the church. He brought me a promotion at work so I don't have to clean motel rooms at night anymore. I remember so clearly the feelings of hopelessness and saying, if I can just make it through today, but our God is faithful. She says, I look at my, (laughs) I look at my cup every day now. I keep it in my car as a reminder that when we, as people, are at our lowest, hopeless and broken, if we just turn to God, he will bring us a cup. I love it. I love it. Because it's not one of these ridiculous stories where she hit the lottery, you know, and she was wealthy forever. Now, you can tell this woman's life is still tough. But this woman's got a grip on God, and she's not hopeless. And I think it's going to be unlikely that she will ever be hopeless again. I'm going to ask you a few things. Then we're going to have a song, a special song to close with. It's a song we open our series with. I want you to stay seated through the song. I'll come back. I'll close us with prayer. But um, 
let me ask you a few things to think about. Is it possible that this was a very special word sent from God to you today? That you just know in your heart, you know God's trying to speak to you today. And maybe, maybe like those lepers, he's saying to you, you've got to take some bold action. You've got to do something that you don't want to do, that you normally wouldn't do. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be motivated enough to do. But you've got to take some bold action or this hopelessness will take you out ultimately. I think he might be saying that to some of you. I think others of you may be confused. This is no disrespect to Micah. I've known Micah for over a decade. Love Micah. She and I have numerous conversations about multiple things. But I think Micah got into that pit of hopelessness because, partially because of some of the horrific things that fellow Christians were saying to her, stupid cliches, as though God's, you just have to pray the right way and God's going to instantly heal everything, make everything good, and that's not the truth all the time. I think that shook Micah, and I think Micah, a little bit because of her pain, lost her clarity on what God has promised for us in this life and what he's promised for us in the life to come. That never needs to happen to her or me or you or any of us again. But some of you, I think maybe you've been a little uncertain. What has God actually promised? What has he said he will do? And maybe you're expecting something that he's never promised to do, and that's creating your hopelessness. Last, some of you have not really truly focused very well on the promises that are certain and eternal. That God promises a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness and love will be forever, where there's no more sickness, sorrow, pain, or death. That since Jesus rose, he promises we will live even though we may go through death. We need to hang on to those and we need to anticipate those. We need to live every day of our lives and every circumstance in light of those because they are meant to stabilize us as we go through this difficult world. And some of us, frankly, we, we haven't taken those to heart. We, 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 even, we even say disrespectful things like, oh, that pie in the sky, buy and buy stuff. No, 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 no. Those are eternal certainties that Christ's sacrificial death paid for so that we can have that certainty so as you listen to this song and the song is so powerful it's only God knows only God knows my heart really only God knows your heart really only God knows what you have gone through in your life no other human even though we try is ever going to understand it but God knows he knows every tear and that's where you have to anchor your life to the God who really, really knows. Only God knows. Please stay seated. I'll come back and close you in prayer.
too afraid of them. I show up while you're dreaming. Nobody, nobody, nobody sees you. Nobody, nobody will believe you. Every day you try to pick up all the pieces, all the memories that somehow never leave you. Nobody, nobody, nobody sees you. Nobody, nobody will believe you. God only knows what you've been through. God only knows what to say about you. God only knows how it's killing you. But there's a kind of love that God only knows. God only knows what you've been through. Thank you for your promises that anchor our soul to you, to truth, to reality, that can enable us to permanently be hope-filled instead of hopeless. May that be true 
of each and every one of us here and Spirit of God, I just pray that you'll motivate and stir each of us that may need to take action to take the action necessary. It's in Christ's name I ask it. Amen.